Hello, and welcome to the Gangster Museum of America After Dark. And now, the founder and director of the Gangster Museum of America, author and screenwriter, Robert Rains. Thanks again, Steve. Just to recap where we ended up last time. Last week, we talked a little bit about the Capone family, the nucleus, and how the family worked in the Prairie Avenue house and how everything was in the beginning. Tonight, we're going to focus on what went wrong or what went right, depending on which side of the coin you're on. So once again, let's welcome Deirdre Capone. And Deirdre, let's just start with the fact that, you know, New York was a tough place to be back at the turn of the century, early 1900s. Uh, I know researching Madden's story, you know, it was really survival of the fittest. What did your grandfather tell you about all that growing up in New York? Um, the things he told me about Brooklyn, you know, being in the Navy Yard, they were cramped in this little tiny apartment. And they didn't have heat in the wintertime. This one time he told me, he said, Deirdre, you just have no idea how cold it was. And one morning, um, you know, it wasn't unusual. In fact, it was probably more than one morning. But he would wake up and he could not open his eyes because they were shut with ice. You know, the tears would freeze on his eyes through the night. And he'd have to, you know, put water on his eyes to try to get them to open up again. He told me about how rough it was. Um, you know, they had no money at all, and they would steal fruit off of the vendors' fruit carts and then go and sell it, you know, to people. They'd steal newspapers and then go into bars and try to sell the newspapers to people, you know, just so that they could get, you know, money to buy a piece of gum or candy. Or a lot of times they would bring it home to their mother because they, they, they had no money. They were the new wave of immigrants. You know, the Irish were just before them. And, of course, you know, the Irish at one time were the low people on the totem pole also. And they'd have names for them like, you know, Lace Curtain Irish and all those slams. Then the Italians came. And, of course, they were the low people. And uh, the teachers would call them lazy. They didn't like to learn. Of course, all the teachers were Irish. So now it's the chance to put down these newest immigrants. Those were the times back then. You know, you didn't have anything handed to you. There was no place to go and, you know, get a free meal. You know, you had to take care of yourself. Well, the obvious question you must get is, especially from Italian people who grew up under somewhat of the same conditions, is... What's different about the Capones? You know, that's another um, good point. Thank you. I've had people say to me that, um, you know, there's a lot of other Italian immigrants that came over and they had a tough time and um, they didn't have food and they didn't have this, but they didn't turn to crime. 
I think the thing that actually happened to make this difference in the Capone family history is that Al did get into trouble in New York. And so when Johnny Torrio um, was looking for someone to take over, because he was getting scared, he had threats on his life, and he knew about Al Capone, so he sent for Al. And Al went with May, they went to Chicago. Um, Al was being trained, he was the soldier, he was a good lieutenant. Well, that's interesting because during that period of time is when Johnny Torrio and his wife and Al first started coming to Hot Springs. Torrio was trying to buy a place down here and retire. Eventually, Jaime Weiss would try to kill him and he would retire. But Al would take over the outfit. So when did your grandfather go to Chicago? On November of 1920, shortly after Al went to Chicago, Al's father dropped dead of a heart attack. And that left my grandfather, who was the oldest at the time, and he was married and had a son, that left him to care for his family. And he, you know, didn't have the job. I mean, he had a job, but now he had his wife his son, his mother, and all those siblings at home, which there was one, two, three, four siblings, five siblings that were still at home that were dependent, that weren't able to go out and earn that kind of money. So Al called my grandfather and said, you know, I think there's an opportunity here for us to earn enough money to take care of the whole family. So he sent for my grandfather, and my grandfather left his wife and son in Brooklyn, and he went to Chicago. My grandfather was the businessman. He didn't like the limelight. He didn't like, you know, to be out in public. He was a very reserved, quiet guy, and there was a reason for that. But um, he was very very reserved, very quiet, and so he went there, and he ran the business. And when they saw that they could make enough money, you know, they kept sending money home to May. May would, you know, go and take care of her mother-in-law and the children, pay for food and things like that. So when they found out that they had enough of a business in Chicago, then they bought the home on Prairie Avenue. And they brought, you know, my grandma and the rest of the siblings to that home. I believe that caused Al and my grandfather to start to strive to get as much money as they could to provide for their family. And it set them off in a whole new direction. You know, one of the crazy things, I realized this when I was writing my book, Capone de Costello, is that a lot of history books repeat bad history. Someone starts it, and then it starts repeating, and then it gets added to. So the story always that I heard was that the Capone boys were more or less illiterate, never went to school or anything. They were just criminals. And this is another myth 
Al Capone was a high school graduate. He was the first of the Capone children to actually graduate from high school. And so the people that say, you know, he got into trouble in school in sixth grade and he got kicked out of school, that was my grandfather. My grandfather got into trouble in sixth grade and he got kicked out of school and he only had a sixth grade education. But Al Capone graduated high school. So now we've got the entire Capone family pretty much living in Chicago. Everything is going great. Al actually makes the cover of Time magazine, 1931. The article talks about how many employees he has and how much money he's making. And all of a sudden, here comes Elliot Ness. And Elliot Ness has a revelation to look into Capone's finances. And the next thing we know, Al is on trial for income tax evasion. Well, the first person they got was my grandfather for the same years as Al, for the same amount of money due as Al, and he was sentenced to three years in the federal penitentiary. So when they started to investigate Al, um, Al thought, well, at most, you know, he would get three years, just like his brother did. But of course, he was forewarned and forearmed, and he kept trying to pay his bill over and over again. He tried, tried to pay his bill. And I'd like to educate you a little bit about the income tax bill. When it was first put into law, there was a provision that you did not have to declare any income that was earned illegally. So if you earned any income from gambling or prostitution or, you know, uh, bootlegging, you did not have to claim that income on your income tax form. And the reason for it, it would be self-incriminating, wouldn't it? So, you know, that was a provision. So they didn't think that they had to put anything on there. When they started to try to dismantle the outfit, and you're right, the only thing that they could find was the income tax evasion, you know, uh, gimmick. So they did that. They convicted my grandfather. He went to out to Washington, in the state of Washington, and served his time out there. Then they came after Al Capone. Al tried everything. He got good lawyers. Um, he, no, he at one time offered to pay the federal government four and a half million dollars if they would, you know, just take that and drop everything. And they said, no, we want you to stand your day in court. So then my uncle went one step further and, you know, they went there, they picked the jury, um, they you know, got everything ready. The trial was going to start. And my, the outfit went in and paid off the jury. They, they found out who the jury members were and they paid them off. Well, the lawyer tipped the judge that they had, the outfit had paid off all the jury members. So the day the trial started, the judge switched juries. The federal government, you know, set up a rat. And, and he'd lied on the witness stand that 
Al indeed had money. He saw him do this. He saw him do that. And so they found him guilty. And my uncle felt that he would probably get three years at the most, because everybody else that had been convicted of income tax evasion got three years. Five at the very most. They sentenced him to 11 years in prison. So they find him guilty, but he doesn't go immediately to Alcatraz. The first year he was in Cook County Jail. And while he was there, he was filing a writ of habeas corpus. So he was working on that. And then they sent him to Atlanta, where he had a very plush life, as you know, people will see when they go through the museum and they look at his room, the cell, um, in Philadelphia, too. You've got the one in Philadelphia, too. But he had the same kind of deal in Atlanta. And the so when Alcatraz opened, when it went from a military prison to a federal prison, um, the warden out on Alcatraz wanted to attract a lot of worldwide attention to how strict that prison is, that once you get out there, you don't escape, you don't get off there. So perfect way is to transfer Al Capone from Atlanta to Alcatraz. And they also did that illegally. They were supposed to go through um, certain permits, you know, the family, you know, all this kind of stuff. They did none of it. They just put him on a train, put him on a boat and sent him out to Alcatraz. Income tax evasion is a white collar crime. The people that were out on Alcatraz committed heinous, you know, crimes which I think resulted in a misconception of Al Capone as being this vicious murderer. Otherwise, why would he be out on Alcatraz? It was wrong. It, 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 to me, it was totally wrong that he was out there. Then, just before, oh, once you get out to Alcatraz, there is no provision of a writ of habeas corpus. And the reason for that is those prisoners out there were such hardened criminals that they were afraid that if they got off the island and went back to the court where they were convicted, go before the judge, they would escape. It would be easy for them to escape. So to replace that opportunity for prisoners out on Alcatraz, they had time off for good behavior. Al Capone became a model prisoner, which you know, just let's think about it, how difficult that had to be for him. When he was in his 20s, he was king of Chicago. He was convicted of income tax evasion when he was 32 years old. He had made millions. Then he gets out there, that tiny little cell, couldn't speak, you know, to get time off with good behavior, that had to be hard for him, too. And he, they tried to make him misbehave. They, they stabbed him in the leg. They did all kinds of things to him out there, and he still wouldn't break. You know, we have an interview with uh, the last public enemy, number one, Alvin Karpus, in the museum that spent time in Alcatraz while Al was there. And it was Alvin Karpus's impression that they tried to knock Al off up there before he got out. What's that story? 
So the last year that he was out there um, and they were afraid that, you know, he was going to get off and he was getting off. He got out in seven years rather than 11. That's how much good time he got off. But when they saw what was happening and he was going to get out early, so the last few months they put him on Terminal Island and they convinced my grandfather that they had a cure for syphilis. And so my grandfather agreed that Al could be treated on Terminal Island for syphilis. That's when he started to go mad. He started to act crazy. Um, uh, they, they have they had to confine him in his room. Um, they, you know, he would yell, he would throw things, he would uh, do crazy things. And of course, this now is all in the records. It's all in the newspaper records. You know, Al Capone did this. He's acting crazy. Oh, yeah, that's the syphilis. You know, they just keep going on and on. Well, the research that I did, and I've had help doing this, the way they treated syphilis back then was injecting people with mercury. When he got out of prison, they had a big party for him in Chicago. And my mother was there. She was pregnant with me at the time. And she told me that Al would go up to somebody and say, who are you? And my aunt would say, it's Maffy, Al. Oh. And he'd go over to his mother and who are you? And then he would go back to his sister again and say, and who are you? One thing about Alcatraz being out there, the prisoners out there are identified by their number. They never give their name. When they would go up for roll call, when they, you know, somebody would come to their cell, they would ask and it'd say, I am number 46, you know, I am 22, whatever. They would go by their number, never, ever by their name. Al Capone, my uncle, to the day he died, could not remember his number. So my grandfather saw that there was something seriously wrong with his brother. So he started making phone calls and found out that he should go to Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. And the two telegrams, the telegram that Alan May sent to my parents on the day that I was born in the upper corner says Baltimore, Maryland. That's where they were on January 25th, 1940. So they put him in the hospital and for three months, they leached the poisons out of his body. Then he went back to Palm Island, where he got strong. My grandmother went to Palm Island and started cooking her good Italian food. My grandmother felt food was medicine. That's the way I grew up. Food is medicine. So she started cooking for him. And the Al Capone that I knew was not crazy. He got his, his body back in shape. He could sing, he could laugh, he could cook, he had fun. He would roll with us on the floor like, you know, a big kid. Um, he would teach you things. We would listen to the radio together and he would laugh at jokes. I also want to let people know, I mean, there's such a misconception 
that he died in bed crazy out of his mind with syphilis, and that is totally not true. So how did Al's life end? Um, He was in Chicago, and this was Christmas of 1946, and I still remember the house. I remember the tree being decorated with real candles on the tree, which I found fascinating, sitting on the tree. Al was there. May was there. Um, He was fine. We had a wonderful Christmas together. And then he went back to Florida because May had was going to have a great big birthday party for him for his birthday. So he went back there. And I guess being in Chicago, cold and, you know, just damp, he got back there and he got pneumonia. And he got very, very sick. And so my grandfather, my father, and I got on a train. We went to Florida because we really didn't think he was going to make it. May didn't think he was going to make it. So we went there, went in his room, and yes, he was in bed, and his eyes were closed. Scared me. I was just a a little girl. Um, But then he rallied, you know. Um, He started to get better. And so my father said, you know, we've got to go back because I had to go back to school. And my grandfather stayed there. And May told me herself that he rallied. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to get in the pool and swim. He had two male nurses with him when he was very, very sick. And they they were still there. And according to May, um, he was in his room. He was in a shower, got out of the shower. The male nurses were toweling him down, and one of the things that all of the Capone men loved to do is they loved to powder their bodies down with talcum powder. I could still remember the smell of his. But they powdered him down, and all of a sudden, May was downstairs, and she heard a thump. Just a thump. And she ran upstairs, and there was Al on the floor. And the male nurses said that he was no longer alive. He dropped dead of a massive stroke. So here we are. Al's died. And there's still some mystery about his funeral in Florida and how all of that went down. No, they were never going to bury him in Florida. And that's another misconception that he had no funeral. My grandfather was still in Florida. So the first person that May called, the first person was Sonny, her son. The second person that she called was my grandfather, Ralph. So my grandfather said, don't do anything. I'll come over. So my grandfather, the first phone call he made was to his friends in Chicago, Rago Brothers, Louis Rago. The Rago Brothers owned the funeral home, and they buried all the outfits. And so my grandfather called Lou Rago and said, you know, all the media is going to be there and they're going to make a mockery out of Al's funeral. So we've got to do this and play it so that we can give him the funeral with dignity without the media taking charge of it. Lou Rago drove to Florida and went in, took the body 
Oh, the first thing was my grandfather didn't go over to the house right away because all the media was out there. Al Capone was sick. So they were all outside the gates and they were just waiting, you know, for any kind of response from inside the house. So nobody did anything. My grandfather didn't go over there until he had made all the arrangements and he called a funeral home in Florida. He called the funeral home and said, when I call you back, I want you to bring a hearse over to Al's house. Finally, my grandfather went to the house, and about five, six hours later, a hearse pulled in through the gates, and the media knew that Al Capone had died. So they loaded Al's body in the hearse, and they drove it to this funeral home in Miami. My Aunt May told me that that funeral home, once the word got out that Al Capone had died, it was huge. I mean, the the people were coming, the flowers were there, everything. So they wanted not let the media know about going back to Chicago. So Louis Rago came in a, just a car, not a hearse, just a car, and went to that funeral home after they had laid Al out in this casket. And they took the body in a car and drove nonstop back to Chicago. Al's body was embalmed in Chicago. So they kept this body in this funeral home in Miami, kept the casket. A day later, they took the casket and they loaded it on a train. Now the body was already in Chicago and all the Chicago people that deserved to know knew that the body was going to be at Rago Brothers Funeral Home and it was going to have this funeral on such and such a day before the casket that was on this train could even get to Chicago. So they didn't know about this funeral. I was in the funeral. I was in the car with my father. And I want people to know, as that funeral procession went down the streets to the cathedral, people were stand. Women, heads bowed, men, hats on their heart, policemen, firemen, hats down over their heart, heads bowed in, you know, I mean, they just, it was wonderful. So we had the funeral, high mass, they took the casket and they put it in a vault. All right. Then the train came to Chicago. Rigo Brothers Funeral Home went and got the casket off the train. They took it to Rago Brothers Funeral Home. The next day, they took it to the cemetery. And my aunt, my grandfather, and I, I think my uncle Mimi were the only ones that went to the cemetery. That was it. And you hear all these history books say, you know, nobody was at the funeral. And the cameramen and the reporters actually had to take this casket and put it in the ground. And absolutely nobody was there. Well, that's not exactly true. Yeah. You know, and I remember I was there and my Aunt Maffie came in the front door, you know, with my grandfather. And she had this big grin on her face. She was all dressed in black, as was my grandfather. And I was there and she just said, we pulled it off. So he had a fantastic funeral, 
fitting for a king. And he was. He was the king. And a king he was. And the king got some vindication later on, didn't he? Uh, About 50 years later, didn't the Bar Association uh, have some kind of a mock trial or something? In 1991, the American Bar Association had their annual convention in Chicago. And so the, um, the lawyers there decided that they would put on a trial. They used a real jury, they used real judges, and they had actors play witnesses. They were going to retry either Shoeless Joe Jackson or Alphonse Capone. And they decided to retry Alphonse Capone. So the whole day, and the head defender is a man by the name of Terrence McCarthy. So they retried him all day. They took the testimony. They got the transcript from the original trial. And that night at the grand ball, the lights dimmed. And a guy goes to the microphone and said, ladies, ladies and ger- uh, gentlemen, the jury has returned the verdict. And the jury finds Alphonse Capone not guilty on all counts. And every single person in that ballroom just cheered and clapped. They never, ever proved income in Al's trial. All they did is they proved spending. You know, the funny thing about this is I think all of them, Giancana, Siegel, if they lived long enough, they wanted to go legitimate. They wanted to have a normal life, which they could do when they came on vacation to Hot Springs. I guess your grandfather would like to have modeled himself after Madden, since Madden was looked upon here as a pretty honorable citizen of Hot Springs. Did he talk about any of that stuff to you? You know, yes, he did talk about Madden because he did tell me that he did the Cotton Club, you know, exactly like Madden did. And I know he came to Hot Springs when Madden was buried, you know, for his funeral. So there was a very strong tie there. You're so right on, you know, with that. Um, they, they made their money that way, and then they tried to um, erase the past, you know, and... and and distance themselves from that. And you know, th- th- look what happened. Let me just give a special thanks to Deirdre Marie Capone for a fantastic podcast. She's a dear friend of mine. I love her. And be sure and buy the book. Steve will give you the information about that at the end of this. And we'll see you next time at TGMOA After Dark. For your copy of Dietrich Capone's book, Uncle Al Capone, call the Gangster Museum of America at 501-318-1717. For a more complete experience, join us on Facebook at TGMOA After Dark or on the web at thegangstermuseum.com. You'll find TGMOA After Dark wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Steve Taylor. Thank you for joining us.